0: Hey guys, thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, Really glad you're here. Uh, We're going to dive into our conversation um, as, as we do, um, be thinking of some questions if we have some time. Uh, if you just want to uh, lift a hand, I'll repeat it for the video uh, so we can hear it. Before we get started, just uh, want to say thanks to uh, not only for you guys, but also for the uh, Pastoral Center here at Southeastern. Um, Dr. Shax, you want to say a word about that?
1: Yeah,
2: well, uh, we love to make resources of, like this available uh, to pastors, to students, and so. You know, you can go on the website and access uh, conversations like this, as well as many others. You know, one was recorded yesterday on the Lord's Supper, and mm-hmm. just some very practical help. And so, there's a whole ton of stuff on there. This one will be added to it. So, grateful to you, grateful for these guys to to help us do that.
0: So, so these guys don't need much of an introduction. Uh, these are um, real heroes of mine. Uh, Dr. Brian Chapel, uh, senior pastor of Grace Prez in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, long time president Covenant theological Seminary, Jim Shadock, uh, professor of preaching, was my mentor at New Orleans Baptist Seminary, my pastor for a long time, uh, and this guy over here you might know as well uh, Dr. Danny Aiken, uh, our great president uh, we 're going to talk about expository preaching uh, and uh, issues related to it so uh, dr chapel're you're, you 're um, you're our guest, so we want to start with you. Thank you for being on our campus. Um, tell us a little bit just about your journey, uh, how you started uh, Walking with Jesus and your journey into uh, the world of expository preaching, pastoring, and so on.
1: Uh, great. Well, the, um, the privilege I had was being raised in a Christian home with uh, two very articulate uh, Christian parents and very well-informed. Uh, they were not in the same place Uh, when it came to kind of theological commitments, my father, those of you in the South here will know, my father was a primitive Baptist elder. And primitive Baptists are sometimes known, do you know the word hardshell? Hardshell Baptists, sometimes known as anti-missionary Baptists, or their better language, absolute sovereignty Baptist, which uh, if you know the William Carey story of, you know, wanting to go and do mission work early on, and the man who said to William Carey, Mr. Carey, sit down. The Lord doesn't need you to save the heathen. He can do it himself my father's church. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, and so absolute sovereignty. Um, my mother, on the other hand, was raised pre Methodist. And if... Uh, wow. So on uh, the kind of sovereignty, human responsibility spectrum, these are polar ends. And uh, as I said, both my parents very articulate, very well informed. Um, and sadly, uh, issues of theology became the flashpoint for actually lots of other issues in their marriage. Mm. So, a lot of my kind of early church upbringing, while really never knowing a day, I praise God, that I did not believe I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I cannot remember not believing that. But my church experience was often um, very rancorous between my parents. And I, um, I tease a little bit saying, um, I went to seminary to try to actually figure out the answer between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And that's why I stayed there for 30 years. <laughs> um, uh, I, I did actually begin very much to understand more of the nature of mystery, of God's purposes and different aspects of his uh, provision. Uh, and uh, uh, very quickly, um, a lot of what the Lord did in blessing my life um, was bringing crisis into my family that ultimately drove my parents back together. When I was in my 40s, my parents separated. When I was in my 50s, my mentally disabled brother was sent to prison. Mm. And uh, when my brother was sent to prison, my parents need to work together, actually brought them back together after 15 years of separation. Wow! And yeah. in their uh, 70s and 80s, they absolutely had the best marriage, the most godly marriage, the, mo- the best time of their entire lives. Amen. Mm. And, uh, and my brother became a believer through the same uh, experience. So I talk about severe mercy and the providence of God, and uh, I believe that in ways that sometimes even surprises me. Mm. So um, uh, believing I was a a child of God early on, I wanted to do what the Lord called me to do, and that led me into a path of ministry that was not a direct line. I didn't want to be a preacher. I didn't want to serve the Lord, and the Lord just opened paths that uh, I walked and uh, led to what I did. But I see his hand in marvelous ways, sometimes severe. But marvelous ways of leading and providential ways in my family's
0: sure. life. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so the Lord led you into uh, theological education, uh, teaching, preaching. Now you're a pastor of a church. Uh, what has that transition been like back into uh, a senior pastor role?
1: Yeah. I, I'm trying to make Danny jealous here. <laughs> <it>? <laughs> yeah.
0: And tell us a little bit about your congregation.
1: Okay. So... Um, I was ten years in the ministry of uh, pulpit ministry. Uh, in the last three years of that, I began teaching preaching at Covenant Seminary. Um, I taught preaching for a couple of years at Covenant Seminary, then resigned uh, because I actually preferred the pastorate. And at that point, the man who was president at the time, Paul Coyster, said, before you leave the seminary, why don't you try administration a little bit? Maybe that'll you know fit your wiring a bit better so i was made dean of faculty and then after 7 years of that president and then i was president for um 20 years and um at that time how do i say this danny um i i had actually been chief administrator at the seminary by then for 27 years wow so i'd been and uh i was ready not to do administration i can understand that so uh, <laughs> the church that i currently pastor and tony knows that because we've been blessed by having having uh tony marita just what a sweet spirit to come to our church and bless us. But uh, the church that I go to is, uh, for our circles, one of the larger churches uh, in our denomination. And um, I've been there a lot of time to raise funds and recruit students and all that sort of thing. So they came uh, recruiting me, and I said, no, you're a large church, and, and I don't want to be a CEO, and I don't want to do administration. They said, actually, we, had, we have two pastoral administrators, so a chief executive for pastoral ministry and a chief executive for business ministries and so if you will come and teach and preach uh, we will do administration so I said how soon can I come <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so uh, that, that's that been the great blessing it is, a, it is an experiment uh, I must tell you I've been there two years I'm learning what it means to be a pastor again there's lots I, I don't know and almost every week think wow why didn't I know that and um, so I'm learning a lot um, I'm one third Outside the church, two-thirds at the church. So I do this kind of thing, do conferences like, like you guys do. All, each of us have seen each other at different places in conferences, so I do conferences nationally and internationally. And uh, that's the agreement with the church. Can that work over time? I don't know. Can you be one-third away from a church and pastor a church? I don't know. Mm. But currently with our administrative structure, uh, we're making that happen. Uh, we are a church in Peoria that is uh, home to one of the country's largest manufacturers, which is Caterpillar Tractor. Wow. Uh, we also have about five uh, colleges and universities in the city, and we have a number of major medical institutions that serve uh, as training institutions for um, schools that are in Chicago, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, so a lot of their teaching hospitals are with us. So we have doctors and, and um, educators and then thousands of engineers are in our church. And that's an interesting dynamic for an English major, you know, <laughs> is uh, lots and lots of engineers. Mm-hmm. And so you, you discovered that experience, mm-hmm. and they love truth, they love, pr- you know, prove it to me, show me where it says that, and uh, you have to do that in mm-hmm. our setting. Mm-hmm. How many
3: Sundays out of the year will you then be in the pulpit there at your church? Forty.
1: Okay. So I'll be there 40 Sundays a year. You, you were, I'm, I'm away during the week additionally, got you. So, but I'm there 40 Sundays a year.
0: And you were saying coming in that you took the entire congregation down to Bradley University this uh, recently, right? On Sunday, we, we you guys worship there. We,
1: we called Greystone Campus. So we, we did an experiment led by our, our new worship leader, which is trying to do a worship service on the Bradley campus as a way of saying we care about the campus. We, we've had really tremendous uh, campus ministries operate out of our church so i said let's let's go there mm. and so that uh and that provided wonderful fruit we only did that maybe three weeks ago first time ever so we're finding out what it means mm. but curiously even people who lived in the neighborhood of the campus kind of came to our worship service you know they heard the music and kind of came and and some of them are now attending the church it's been a, it's
0: fantastic. a phenomenal
1: experience and it's again experiment experiment, mm-hmm. experiment we don't, we don't know
0: Let's talk about expository preaching. Let's just start with some uh, basics here. What is expository preaching and and why should we do it? You guys want to take a stab at that? That's for the whole panel.
3: Well, I say in a very short, short definition that expository preaching is text-driven preaching. So that the text is the master. And uh, it uh, dictates virtually everything. Certainly the structure and the substance of what is going to be taught. And then, of course, there are different ways we may flesh that out. And let me just simply say what uh, Brian did this morning uh, from Numbers was incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish that all of my students will go out and do likewise. Mm-hmm. So, But he let the text drove everything. The text dictated everything. And yet he did so in the light of the whole grand redemptive story. Mm-hmm. And so I think you don't want to become myopic are mm-hmm. atomistic, mm-hmm. but you do want to explain the text in light of the bigger text. And if you do that, then I think you're being faithful to what we would call expository preaching. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, mine would be secondary to what he just said. But, uh, <laughs> my working definition, I think, would be laying open a text in such a way that the Holy Spirit's intended meaning is brought to bear on the lives of contemporary listeners. Uh, the key being you know, the process of us laying open, peeling back the layers so that what God has said through the Holy Spirit and what He's intended for us to hear is is made known and, mm-hmm. and people are accountable, held accountable for
0: mm-hmm.
1: Want to add to that, Dr. Um, we all have ways that we try to communicate it quickly. I I uh, try to say to my students, expository preaching, we try to say what God says. Mm-hmm. So j- just that quickly. We're in a Southern Baptist institution, so if we take the classic broadest definition, uh, Topic, main points, and subpoints from the text. So that means the the ideas are coming directly from the text and provable from the text. In our circles, evangelistic, evan- evangelical expository circles, we usually think of that in terms of an outline, main points and subpoints. What I did in our chapel time, was inductive. I was asking questions rather than having formal main points. Yeah, you didn't really have a structured outline. Uh, it's, it's, it was inductive, but still the inductive is taking its main ideas out of the text. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is an inductive expository. I think most of us train to do a deductive expository where you have more of a skeletal outline. Mm-hmm. But the more we do kind of narrative studies, the more we recognize inductive can be appropriate at times. Mm-hmm. But still main ideas and supportive ideas come out of the text, so the text governs we say what God said. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question,
3: sure. Brian? You're really well known for your contribution with the Fallen condition Focus. How does that impact or um, relate to your understanding or definition of the exposition?
0: And, and give a definition briefly of the FCF, Fallen uh, condition Focus.
1: So um, Fallen condition Focus, uh, um, I, there's a, a long definition of the book, but you'd, you'd have to say something like what is the the burden of the text as well as the subject of the text. So as you're looking at the text you're saying not only what's here, but why is it here? What, and uh, In that time, but also in our time. Mm-hmm. So my simplest way of saying it, what is the mutual burden that we share with the persons of the text? Mm-hmm. So it's not just saying what is the topic or the subject. Mm -hmm. But why is it here? These are not random stories, they're not random accounts. There is a reason Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit included this in Scripture. And our goal is to identify the reason for the subject as well as the subject. Often, particularly when you're trained in academic settings, we are trained to look at the text and say uh, simply what what doctrine is here or what duty is here. Mm -hmm. And I'm always trying to drive people back and say, no, no, what is the struggle that requires that doctrine and duty? Because if you don't deal with the struggle, you'll create applicational lists, do all this stuff and implication, then you'll be okay with God. Instead of saying, no, what, what is the reason that that text was written? What was the Holy Spirit's purpose as well as the Holy Spirit's subject? And when you begin to discern, here is the human dilemma, mm-hmm. here's the human struggle then you are saying, here's how truth goes to struggle. Mm-hmm. And instead of burdening people, you're shepherding them. Mm-hmm. Here's the struggle. Here's how you are like them. There's no temptation mm-hmm. taking you, but such as is common. Mm-hmm. So when I begin to identify the struggle, then the redemptive elements of Scripture have their own purpose now to bear. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, here's, here's what's wrong. Here's how God has to solve this problem, not just how you fix it by doing five more things that even the preacher hadn't thought about until this sermon. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so what's... What's the b- Holy Spirit burden of the text as well as the Holy Spirit subject mm-hmm. of the text?
0: And do you normally uh, put that in the introduction of your sermon? I
1: do. Thank yeah. you, Tony. Yeah.
0: Because <laughs> I, I so, say to do that based upon what you say. Yeah. I, I,
1: now, you, you can just kind of get a good speech communication theory, right? So, you know, the old Dale Carnegie analogy was to have anybody listen. You start your message by put a man in a hole. Okay. You can put a man in a hole, now he's got to get out of the hole. Now we can just make that very pragmatic and say, FCF, Fallen condition Focus, is saying what's the dilemma, what's the human problem? But theologically we say, if it really is a consequence of our fallenness, it cannot be fixed by human answers. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we say, what's the fallen condition? Mm-hmm. What's the mutual burden that we share that the Holy Spirit is addressing? And by identifying that, we're dealing with the redemptive purposes of the text,
0: mm-hmm. not
1: just the human answers to the text.
0: Right,
1: right. Sex so in, in the Numbers
2: 20 passage this morning, and you stated that up front, but you would see the fallen condition focus as us identifying with Moses and the flesh is pulled to steal God's glory.
1: Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, and and try to say, this isn't just Moses' problem. We share it. Mm -hmm. So, um, Tony's helping me, and you are too, Jim. I mean, I usually try to talk about what's the mutual condition Mm -hmm. that we share with those two or for whom the text was written. Mm -hmm. So, if we're saying, here was their struggle, by the way, it's not theirs alone. Again, they're not random texts here, they're not random accounts. The Holy Spirit said this for a purpose. So, how are we to identify with that struggle? And as we identify with that struggle, we begin to learn how God's provision is dealing with that and then how we respond to the provision rather than how we fix the problem. Mm-hmm. God's got to fix the problem if it's a fallen condition.
0: And you what they are in- really
1: doing is theological hermeneutics. I am, and approaching it because of practical theology, approaching it from the sense of identify the pastoral reason for the text early on, mm-hmm. so that people are invested in hearing the theological answer, mm-hmm. rather than presuming they're sitting here so I can pour theology on them, mm-hmm. rather to identify what's, what's, what's the place of hurt or rebellion or sin. It's not just felt need, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's, that's a different category. It really is what is the fallen condition, what is the biblical need that's mm-hmm. being identified, mm-hmm. because that can only be satisfied by redemptive answer. Sometimes people who read in a very cursory way identify fallen condition as felt need, mm-hmm. or they sometimes call it an anthropological center. You're just identifying the human need. And I actually say that, that that's, not, that's not accurate. I'm identifying a fallen condition mm-hmm. that the scriptures identified at the requirement of God because that will require a divine solution. mm mm-hmm. And if you don't have a fallen condition, you do not require a divine solution. That and true. that makes it an anthropological sermon.
0: And you're saying Christ-centered preaching on a fallen condition isn't necessarily a sin. It could be grief, longing for Christ's return.
1: It's the human dilemma. Right. So if we're fallen creatures in a fallen world, it may be a sin, certainly. Mm-hmm. But it, it may be something that is part of being in a fallen world and having to navigate that world mm-hmm. with the help of God.
0: Mm-hmm. So, on the issue of expository preaching, what are some alternative methods? Why, why should we prefer uh, expositional preaching to these alternative methods? Dr. Aiken, you want to start? Well, I would argue
3: that when you look at the book of Acts and even the book of Hebrews, you have patterns there that are basically um, expository in nature. Now, granted, we've got summaries, uh, we've got commentary going on, but uh, when you look at the different sermons, take the day of Pentecost, he basically brings together three sermons or three texts, excuse me, and develops the theology and the content of what's in each of those. So that's one. The other is I really don't think that we have a word apart from God. We don't. Uh, It's just another man's opinion. And therefore, there's again a deeply theological reason why I believe biblical exposition is the best approach to preaching because it teaches the word of God who has the word for us. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I don't think I have anything really to say, Tony, mm-hmm. apart from God's Word. And so uh, I need to be directing them to that which is truth, mm-hmm. that which is inerrant, that which is infallible, and that which really does provide the, the answers to the dilemmas that they face in this fallen and broken world. Mm-hmm. I also think, one last thing, I think it if you do it well, you model for your people how you hope they will handle the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very important part of the pulpit that we don't always think about. But your people, if they look up to you and admire you and respect you, are going to follow in your footsteps, and they will very likely handle the Bible in the same mm-hmm. way that you do. Mm-hmm. So, a question I always ask my students to ask themselves, and I ask my own uh, self the question if my people were to handle week in and week out the Bible in the same way that I do, <laughs> would that be a good thing or a bad thing? And I actually think exposition is a, a, an approach that can be modeled. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with topical preaching. I don't know how to model that, and therefore I don't know how to teach my people to do it in a way that I think would be responsible and uh, in the long run really helpful to the body.
2: Yeah, I think that's rooted in, in our, our our doctrines of revelation. We believe God has spoken, uh, and the doctrine of inspiration, and we believe we've got an accurate record you know, of that, that God has given us this word. And that that word is not intended to accomplish every purpose under the sun. You know, it's it's not intended to answer every question people are asking. It's not intended to be a practical manual for daily living. God has spoken and revealed that which is necessary for our redemption. And and therefore, we we have no option except to expose and deliver that message. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we treat the Bible as a a reference book, it's just a book of subjects, then we can talk about God and we can talk about all kinds of things, but never ever get Mm -hmm. to the gospel, never ever get to his reason for Mm -hmm. giving us this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, this issue that God has delivered a message, he's spoken a message and he calls upon us to deliver us, I think compels us Mm -hmm. to deliver it as close to the way that God gave it to us
1: as possible. Mm. 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 That's good. Um, so, go back to the standard broadest definition. So, for a broadest expository message, topic, main point, sub points, subpoints from the text. Topical message just gets its topic from the text, but its development from elsewhere. A textual message gets topic, main points from the text, subpoints from elsewhere. I don't think we would contend that you are necessarily doing something heretical to have a yeah. topical or textual message. There can be very solid, if the goal is to say what God says, uh, sometimes we will say I want to talk about Lord's Prayer, I want to talk about uh, in a specific way, but sometimes I want to talk about prayer broadly in the Scriptures. So I may have a topical sermon. But, but what Danny and Jim both have described is what's the bread and butter? Yeah, what, what, what's, the, what's the regular diet mm-hmm. that we want our people to have? If we're saying, I want you to be able to read the Bible and discern what the original author said, that comes from a diet of expository preaching. Mm -hmm. This is not denying that topical messages may not be appropriate at times, or Mm -hmm. textual messages. You can certainly say what's true Mm -hmm. in those kinds of messages. But it may not be the way to teach what the Bible is saying on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So without denying the efficacy of uh, right-minded topical and textual messages, an expository message... Broadest language again, solemnly binds the preacher to say what the text says, mm, and that solemn binding us is kind of a good diet for mm. God's people.
3: Mm. I think Walt Kaiser said you can preach a topical sermon once, like every seven years, and then <laughs> <laughs> repent and ask
0: God to forgive you. That's a good model.
3: Why did
2: you yeah. point to me when you said? No, 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 I was not pointing <laughs> <to> anyone.
0: <laughs> I see what you're doing, quoting Broadus too here at the Southern Baptist Seminary. It's, it's, um,
3: well, let me ask. Yeah. Can I ask so obviously you really think very highly of what Broadus
1: taught. Sure. I think of, of Broadus as being the father of expository preaching as we now practice it. Okay. So um, there are people who would claim others, but there's no question that Broadus was responding to uh, German higher criticism coming to the States and the effect upon Southern Baptist circles as well as other circles. So Broadus was trying to find a methodology which he claimed was the ancient method, which it isn't, Um, If you were to look at most of the centuries of preaching, almost always they are topical messages. And uh, at the same time, Broadus was recognizing as those who were preaching were now saying whatever they wanted, because there was not a method to bind them to what the text said, that he looked particularly at some of the Reformed writers and others, but then he designed particularly an expository method that we still practice, and he claimed it was the ancient and primitive method. there's really no evidence of that. It's the ancient and primitive ethic, right, to say what God says. And he was coming up with a method to bind That's us good. to that.
0: Mm. One more theoretical question, we'll get really practical here. What is bad expository preaching? What does that look like? Because sometimes I think as people react Why ne- you negatively. Why are you looking at Jim? <laughs> <Yeah, sorry. laughs> when, when I hear people critique uh, exposition, often I, I hear them critiquing poor exposition. Um, so, what should we avoid? In, in expository preaching?
3: Well, on the one hand, we should uh, avoid as best we can being poor communicators. Uh, I think that one uh, manifestation of bad expository preaching is boring preaching. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're boring, you can take a really good method and make it appear to be a bad method. Mm-hmm. And so, I do think all of us should seek to refine our communication skills to the best of our ability. Uh, we were talking about uh, one of our heroes walking over here. Most of us have not been given the voice or the presence of an Adrian Rogers, uh, but we can still take what God has given us and develop those skills and abilities to a manner in which God can then bless and use. So I think that would be one aspect of it, Tony. The other would be where perhaps we get up there and what we simply do is a a rather detailed exegesis. Mm -hmm. And though exegesis precedes exposition exegesis is not exposition mm-hmm. and i think that if that's what we do i'd rather you do that mm-hmm. than get up there and just talk about whatever you want because i mm-hmm. think god's going to honor his word but exegesis should be the foundation upon which we then develop expository sermons that involve introduction good introductions good conclusions mm-hmm. exposition illustration application exhortation all those things that go in mm-hmm. to making a healthy sermon mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and to, to that point, not everything that we dig up in our exegesis needs to find its way into our sermon. That's you know? right. and I think that 's one of the breakdowns is, is not knowing how to determine all right what is absolutely necessary for me to either explain or argue uh, you know to, to use as functional elements uh, you know in order to bring home this point and mm-hmm. and be okay with leaning leaving a really cool word study you know word meaning that we dug up in in the exegesis that really though is not Mm -hmm. is not that significant for the understanding of that you know of that text
0: do you find that hard to do or easy to do uh, you know, I, I certainly live with the
2: temptation of, gosh, I discovered this and it's going to bless really the world. Cruel. It's going <laughs> to knock their socks off and, and, and bring it all the way
0: in. Is that why your sermons and are so long?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's some hot air in there, too. So one other thing I would throw out uh, there is just the, the reality of thinking. Um, or the temptation—I want to say—reality. It is a reality, but of thinking that expository preaching is just going verse by verse or just preaching through books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You can go verse by verse and you can preach through a book of the Bible and still butcher the text. That's <laughs> <Yes>, right. And <laughs> so, so we 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 need to avoid confusing those two things. Expository right. preaching is not a sermon form. Right. I don't think it's just to be put up against topical or textual or narrative mm-hmm. or something like that. But it's a process, and that process is to the end of what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. very good.
1: Yeah, I, I, We're all agreeing uh, expository sermon is not a commentary dump, right? Mm-hmm. So just throw, and um, Stott is the one who says the the greatest torture of any preacher is putting aside 90% of what you could say about a passage in order to say what you must say. Mm-hmm. And so that, that process of unifying, winnowing, here's where I'm going, is driven, I think, by really what we said is the purpose of an expository message. I want to say what God says. I want to communicate the meaning. But we don't have meaning if we don't know significance. Mm -hmm. So that means exposition by necessity is not just the commentary dump. It's not just exegesis. It is necessarily application. Mm -hmm. Here's what the text says, and here's what it means for you. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't know its significance for me, I don't really know what it means. Mm And so full exposition of the text requires application as well, which typically means it requires demonstration, which is the illustration. So those classic components that Danny mentioned, explanation, illustration, application, sometimes we say those are not all exposition. And I actually say, no, they all are exposition, if we are talking about explaining the significance of the text Mm. as well as merely what the words say. Because saying what the words say is necessary, but not sufficient. Mm. You must know its significance for you, Mm. and that drives us beyond the commentary Mm. dump.
0: Dr. Jackson, let's start with you. Walk us through the weekly sermon prep process. What does that look like? If you know you're preaching on Sunday and it's Monday morning, what do you do?
2: That a dangerous question in front of students, you know, that are sitting in our classes. You it's know, not dangerous teaching. at all if you lie.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, because, you know, I, I would answer the question from a, a functional, practical standpoint, not necessarily with the exact same terms that show up in a homiletics textbook, even one that, you know, that I helped to write because we know when we when we do homiletics, when we're teaching, we need to overanalyze the process in order to understand every part. But as I've looked at my own process, you know, with that against the backdrop, I think the way I would describe it is is I want to begin with prayer, and I don't say that as rhetoric. Uh, that could be a presumption for a lot of guys or an assumption. Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to pray. It's not for me. My flesh pulls me to do this academically you know to to just have so I, I i know i've got to start there and not just start there but but make the sermon preparation process a conversation with god and i have to i have to hold myself accountable and keep coming back to that because mm-hmm. like i said i i want to get caught up in the mechanics of it but mm-hmm. start with prayer the next thing i would say is observe uh, I want to just spend time reading the text making as many observations about it as i possibly can um, and there's all kinds of detail we could talk about how you do that what you're looking for the the, the next thing you know for me i would call organize um, and i don't mean that from the standpoint of finding the sermon outline at that point I may find the seeds of the sermon outline or the base, but looking for does the text give me a way to structure this? Does it give? Is there a natural breakdown? Is there a natural, and and you know that may be looking at a mechanical layout or a structural diagram or the flow of a narrative. How is this text structured? Uh, because that does two things. Number one, it can help with meaning. It can help us understand because meaning sometimes is communicated in structure, and secondly, it might provide the you know the the seedbed for what will become an outline later, so uh, organize the the next step for me would be consult, uh, and that is consulting, bringing other people around the table and you know by way of commentaries, uh, language scholars, the resources that we use you know at least I know I need to use beyond myself to help reduce the subjectivity. Uh, after that refine all of that material now refining that determining what to include what to leave out uh, and 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 maybe now beginning to flesh out that outline and, and, and formalize it. And then the next step would be write. Uh, I would be lying if I said I did this every week. I did for the last three years when I was at the Church of Brook Hills because we used those manuscripts uh, as a good discipline. And so whether it's a manuscript or a sermon brief, fleshing that out, articulating it, mm-hmm. And this is where I'm thinking even more specifically about application and illustrations mm-hmm. and that type of thing. And then the last stage, you know, for me I, I, is internalize, mm-hmm. uh, is, okay, how, to what degree is this message in my heart already, not in my heart? If it's a low degree, it's not in my heart. I need to spend more time doing this mm-hmm. because I can get up and sp- preach an expository message and it still be dead. It'd mm-hmm. still be life if it's not flowing out of the heart. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, And and I'm I'm one, you know, my personal preference is preaching without notes, so it's especially important that that, you know, that becomes something that, you know, that is is in my heart and I can get out and communicate to the people.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Aiken, I imagine you follow a similar pattern. Anything you want to add to that? Well, doing what I do now, what Brian
3: used to do, I grab study time any time I can. You know, Dr. Crystal gave his mornings to the Lord. I can't do that, so I just try to carve out time here, carve out time there, uh, my pattern is very similar to the Jim's. i just add one word I think would be a blessing to these guys. It was to me. Dr. Crystal said, I give my mornings to the Lord. And when he was asked on one occasion, well, when do you do your devotions? He said, my mornings are my devotions. He said, I sanctify my study time. He said, my study time is not laborious. My study time is worshipful. And I try to prepare my teachings that I'm going to share with my people in a way that God is using that time Mm -hmm. to feed my soul and Mm -hmm. develop my heart and my life. Now, I I don't think he would say there's anything wrong with, you know, just reading the Bible and praying, Mm -hmm. but he said, I really approach that whole discipline Mm -hmm. in an act of worship. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, at first I thought that really can't happen, but it can. Mm -hmm. And so, like Jim, if you put the whole thing before the Lord in an attitude and disposition of prayer and say, Lord... Mm -hmm. If nobody gets anything out of this but me, hopefully that's not what happens, but if mm-hmm. I'm the only one mm-hmm. to be blessed and edified by this and I'm built up and strengthened in my walk with you, then that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think if you approach the study in that kind of a way, mm-hmm. it just makes it look different.
0: Mm-hmm. How long does it take to you to prepare a sermon if it's a new text? Now? Yeah, um, Ten to twelve hours. It used to take twenty,
3: twenty-five. And again, I'm grabbing stuff all the time. I tell my class playfully, uh, I don't really like, I do love, in one sense, NFL red zone, but in another sense, I'm being greatly hampered by it. You say, why? Because I always have commentaries with me anywhere and everywhere I go. So I used to could read, but, you know, there's 30, 40 seconds between every play. Mm -hmm. You watch the play, you read. You watch the play, you read. You watch the play, you read. I could go through four or five commentaries in an afternoon of college football or nfl football but now with multiple games at the same time i have to move back and forth and red zone doesn't give you any break i mean by the time that's over i have to take a nap i am so exhausted from watching all these football plays like that so
2: and it's, george is playing you get a lot of commentary uh, time. oh, oh yeah.
3: yeah
0: well that is so evil but anyway so 10 to 12 hours tony Are you in similar, Dr. Chapel, in terms of time? Well, let me
3: ask you. What did you do when you were president of a seminary? What did you do? Uh,
1: uh, Well, um, I I was thinking as you were talking that if I have no other goal in this time, it's to make you jealous. So that would be. uh, (laughs) So I definitely know that life. You know, catch two hours here, you know, 45 minutes on a plane there, and, you know, and how many sermons have I written that way? I now have all of Thursday to write. I know I can make you jealous, know. But that that actually is my pattern now. I have I have Thursdays, and now this week, obviously I'm not doing that. So uh, instead, uh, I was writing on the plane. You know, I, I was in Chicago earlier in the week, and, and here now. So I've been writing lots on planes. But my normal pattern is I can take Thursdays now, and and eight to ten hours would be the norm. Can can we say that that may make people feel bad? You you were kind because you said 20 hours once a people think when they're starting they're taking too much time but before you know you know what is Habakkuk about and you know if if you're not familiar with your tools or even the just kind of the rhythm of pastoring it's not wrong that it takes you 20 hours you know Spurgeon though he didn't practice it used to say an hour per minute you know of preparation for a minute of a sermon and then didn't prepare until dinner the night before. But, you know, all (laughs) all, all those, you know, I don't know what's mythology there and what's reality. (laughs) Uh, But So the hard thing is, average American pastor spends less than two hours. Mm. Um, For us to say eight to ten hours, for people who are well known for their preaching and do it well, I hope encourages people to say, it's not throw together last minute. It's not two hours. Even those who are have done it for a lifetime, or well skilled. We think it takes a significant amount of our work, not just on a day, but you're thinking about ahead of time. Right. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, I have to have, a te- a t- I have to have text and title in by Tuesday at two in the afternoon for the all the machinations of a large church that we have to do. But you know, I've I've sent actually the topic to my worship leader. Month, uh, uh, sometimes months, at least weeks ahead of time, mm-hmm. so that you at least have. Mm-hmm. I talk about a pre-sermon file. I have some notion of where I'm going weeks ahead of time, mm-hmm. so it's not just put together even on Thursday. It's not mm-hmm. just that day only. I'm kind of ruminating long term.
3: Tony, you do that, don't you? You got planned out like you are in Acts right now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what you're going to do after Acts? Yeah. So you're thinking down I'm not, the road. I'm not
0: super long-term like James Merritt that has all his illustrations and files and those. But, yeah, I've already thought about next week, even though I'm still trying to finish this week. So but I mean, yeah. in terms of the next subject. Next series, have, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would want to add one thing, Tony, just to – I thought, and I've said this in one of my classes the other day, I think God is is going to hold us accountable for the amount of time that we have mm-hmm. and, and you know, there are guys that are going to be in different ministry situations, different ki- kinds of pastorates where they have different degrees of how to manage, you know, the control over their time mm-hmm. and you know, guy in a guy in a full-time vocational pastorate where he's putting bread on his table through his ministry uh, may be able to block out and, and needs and should block out more time. I used to be one of those guys that would stand up and say, if you're not spending 30 hours, you know, you're not doing justice to the text. But I tell you, the more I got to know my vocational brothers, mm-hmm. you know, that have 50 and 60 hour jobs a week, they got families. Knowing these guys are God called, you know, they're not second team or anything, mm-hmm. but you know guys on the front line I, I had to begin thinking differently about how that looks you know and and, and what is is needful uh, and I think for those you know those of us that get to put bread on our table through our ministries there's an element of accountability in the amount of time we live whereas mm-hmm. a guy that maybe is not able to give 20 hours but is needing to fit it in much like the seminary pre- president you know might have to do in mm-hmm. in different places uh, different times if God can be a husband to the widow and a father to the fatherless, then he can fill in the gaps you know, mm-hmm. that that particular life stage does, mm-hmm. and we can rest in that. Amen.
0: That's good. That's good. A couple more questions, then we'll kick it to the students here. Um, two or three models of you, you would commend uh, preachers for uh, students to listen to, and then I'll come back around for some must-read preaching books uh, for everyone. So we'll start with uh, Dr. Aiken. Well, I I was told when I first
3: took preaching that good preachers listen to great preachers, and I I believe that. So early in my life, I listened a lot to uh, John MacArthur, uh, Chuck Swindoll, Adrian Rogers, Jerry Vines. Uh, Those men in particular uh, really impacted my life. In recent years, I've grown to appreciate uh, people like uh, Alistair Begg, John Piper, uh, Mark Dever, David Platt now with the internet and what's available what I do and I again if I'm preaching through a particular series I will just go on the internet and see if these men that I have respect for Have done that book and if they have I download it and then I bike I walk Uh, When I'm in the car somewhere, I listen to it. So those are men that shaped me early Mm -hmm. uh, And W.A. Criswell Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, then men that I'm listening to today Mm.
2: Uh, Certainly uh John MacArthur has been very influential with regard to handling the text and letting scripture interpret scripture and so uh, that's been very formative. A guy I would mention that's you know probably much lesser known uh, Arturo Azurdia who's a professor of preaching at Western Seminary as well as a church planter um, and I'll mention his book in you know in a minute when we mm-hmm. come back around but uh uh, man, I love that brother's yieldedness to the Lord. His pure exposition and one of the most anointed preachers I've ever listened to in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah,
1: Dr. Chapel. Um, I w- I would uh, name those names also. Um, you know, the, it's important I think to say I learn different things from different people, mm-hmm. and yes. so I listen yeah. for different reasons, mm-hmm. and so. Um, there would be people I disagree with strongly on certain theological things and yet I recognize I learn things from them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, an example, and I don't know where he broadcasts it, it, would be a David Jeremiah that I would have significant theological differences with but does application about as well as anybody I know. And I, I, I learn things in listening to him about doing application even though I'll have differences in other things. Chuck Swindoll tells a story, you know, you just oh, kind yeah. of say I, I learn things. I learn things about taking myself not so seriously. Mm-hmm. Of why are people endeared to him mm. when at times I think I, I wish he'd handle the text a bit more but then I understand that he's doing something in terms of relating to people that's not natural to me mm. that that, that I need to good. learn and then maybe one more thing that may strike you as, as odd but uh, Danny was saying he listens, that actually is my pattern too in my exercise I typically listen to other people I listen to my own students now the ones who had me a decade ago and are now preaching regularly. One of the things is they're. I'm learning how they have expanded on what I do and therefore I can expand on what I do. Mm-hmm. I'm not stuck in my own method as it were, mm-hmm. but I'm not outside my paths. Mm. So I, as I, as I listen to a George Robertson, um, as I listen to a Ryan Laughlin, which may or may not be names that you know, uh, as I listen to a Ray Cortez. I'm, I'm listening to people that, that I think do excellent what I train them to do, but they've gone beyond me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm learning after them, mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, there's another dimension of something I hadn't thought about, mm-hmm. of, of what I'm familiar with, mm-hmm. but I hadn't even thought of yet.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Three How books. How would you answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. Models? Um, I would say in the last five years, no one's impacted me more than Tim Keller. Yeah. Uh, his ability to uh, preach to the believer and unbeliever at the same time. Is super super important. I think, especially in our culture, and especially in a church planning setting. And listening to him do it is it was has been wonderful to me. All of you guys as well. I put on that list. Um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Yeah, I meant to add him is, and league Duncan. Yeah, both. Yeah, yeah. I love Sinclair. Leek um, my student. Man was he? You taught Lick. <laughs> you did well. <laughs> yeah. You did very take well. credit for You're Lincoln, the only two guys preaching on numbers <laughs> yeah. at, uh, at Southeastern. You've got to bring in the Presby's to have, have numbers taught. That's
2: right. Uh, St. Blair yeah. was my student. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 he actually almost did that. <laughs> I was like,
0: really? When did he go to a Baptist school? <laughs> Three books every, every student of preaching should read. Um,
3: He's gone where I wish he wouldn't go on the women's issue, but uh, had Robinson's book on biblical preaching just became a standard in the field and really was very shaping in my life. Uh, Brian's book, I meant what I said this morning, It's just an outstanding treatment of how to do exposition with Christ at the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that has impacted my life. Uh, Power in the Pulpit that Jim and Jerry Vines did uh, was also very influential and shaping in my life. I cut my teeth on Charles Kohler, Mm -hmm. Expository Preaching Without Notes, which is not a bad book at all. And uh, so that's where I started. And uh, so those would be three or four. Mm -hmm.
2: Got a PhD student's about to write on Kohler.
0: Really? Yeah.
3: Oh, that'd be good to read.
2: Um, All of you brothers have written books that have impacted me greatly and continue to be helped, uh, you know, it helps to, uh, to me. So uh, the ones that are represented on this, you know, this panel here, I would add to that uh, Arturo Azzerdi's book, Spirit Empowered Preaching, maybe the most formative book in my own uh, preaching and ministry. Certainly I haven't mastered it, but, you know, as far as mm-hmm. continuing to speak into my life. Uh, I'll throw one in, in there that won't make the, um, uh, the academic uh, list, uh, but I've required it in every you know, base preaching course that I've taught going back to New Orleans, and that's the Inbounds Power Through Prayer. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, I love for guys to just be exposed to his heart and his call for,
0: mm-hmm.
2: for that prayer to be wed with our preaching.
0: It's good. It's good.
1: Um, all those are helpful. By the way, Art has a new one coming out Spirit and Power Mission. So that will come very soon, hmm. and also very good. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Preacher and yes. Preaching. John Stott, Stott yes. it's being updated between two worlds. It which is. Which I actually find to be the best of culture and preaching. Not, not purely a preaching book, but thinking through our context, mm-hmm. as well as what we're saying. Mm-hmm. I still think it's the best. Tim's new book on preaching, Tim Keller's, is certainly thinking about culture mm-hmm. and, and preaching. Um, then, a couple of things which uh, you all may be surprised. Again, read for different purposes. Andy Stanley on communication is pragmatic yeah. um, but realistic yes. and extremely helpful thoughts in extremely pithy ways. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, it's not what I would use as a basic textbook, but if you're looking for kind of just solid ideas on communicating with people, it he knows what he's doing in that regard. So um, those, those are good things. And then not all of you will know uh, Rhett Dodson as a name that may be off your, your tracks. But, uh, again, a very good uh, younger pre- Christian preacher thinker now, Rhett Dodson and I would uh, recommend him to you. Mm
3: -hmm. Tony, both John Piper and Alistair Beck have little short, Mm -hmm. Alistair's more like a booklet. John's a very short book, but both of those, if you just want to kind of get a quick, Mm -hmm. uh, encouraging, spiritually enriching taste for how to do preaching and Mm -hmm. in
0: particular exposition, both of those are really very, very valuable. And a new book just came out, uh, Sweeter Than Honey, by uh, Christopher J. H. Wright. Preaching from the Old Testament uh, is really, really good. All right, a couple questions uh, from the audience. we got, we got a few minutes. Uh, somebody want to throw a hand up? We'll take a question. From the back. Yes, sir. Um, how would you encourage someone who may not be preaching expositionally
1: um, to move from being just a commentator or to use the
0: Scripture for How do you encourage? I get this question a lot, often from uh, students who are under uh, pastors who aren't doing exposition, and they, they come and say, what do I do? And... Uh, I say you need to, I, I say various things. Um, so, how, how, yeah. I can't repeat. <laughs> yeah. the, the question was, how do you encourage a guy to move into more faithful exposition? Well, whatever you do, you need to do it
3: humbly and graciously and not like a seminarian know-it-all. Mm-hmm. And I'll just leave that. Mm. They can build on that. Mm. But it does matter how you approach them. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: And I think rela- the relationship that you have with that person is a key on how you approach them and how you have that conversation. You know, on whether you can have be the one to have that conversation. Um, I, I think the things we're talking about are rooted in how we think about preaching, not just how we preach. And so, I one of the things I encourage guys to do is if you can, if you can initiate an arena to mm-hmm. dialogue about preaching. That's good. Uh, and and help influence the way someone thinks about preaching, then the process is going to flow from that,
0: mm-hmm.
2: as good. opposed to just coming in and saying you need to be an
1: expository preacher. Right, right. Because because the sad thing is everybody thinks they are.
0: Yeah, right? that's right. So, that's so that's
1: right. Um, everybody thinks they're saying what the word says. I mean, again, Southern Baptist circles uh, pe- people are trained to say I'm I'm a. You know the Bible's my book, and I'm preacher of the book, and and in in my circles too. And then, if you're trained, you kind of go, actually, that's not expository. But then you need to, you know, what's what's the way? I mean, Jim had such a good suggestion that you create a forum. Say, let's listen to some guys together. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. talk about what some guys are doing. Or, have you listened to so and so? What'd you appreciate? What didn't you appreciate? But you know, ultimately, you come back to the broadest definition: main points and topic, main points and subpoints from the text. That's actually fairly rare. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who have, on the flip side, there are people who ha- define expository preaching a very narrow way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you have to n- number each one of your main points. My point number one, my point number two. I have sometimes people say, You're not expository preacher. I'm saying, What do you mean by that? You know? And, and they're saying, Well, you didn't say number one, number two, number three. And I say, Well, actually, that's not a definition of expository preaching. <laughs> <No. theology." laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so, but that's their expectation, right? right? Right. So I think uh, let's listen to people together, and then maybe get some good definitions on the table. It's good. Um,
0: when we uh, deal with some, some some of the hard passages, such as uh, Hebrews six, you know, verses one through seven, um, as we consult different commentaries, we we'll also see different ideas, different uh, you know interpretations, and we certainly have our own uh, opinions stances on uh, issues, but when we deliver the sermon on the hard passage like this, mm-hmm. how do we balance it? Mm-hmm. How do you preach on hard passages? Avoid
3: them? <laughs> well, that is, the, that is the good thing of going through books of the Bible. They're unavoidable. You're going to run into them. Uh, what I do, when I, I uh, take a text like that, I will most of the time throw out the three or four different I won't spend a long period of time. I was, you know, This is a very difficult passage. Godly men hold to varying views. For example, some believe this, some believe this, some believe this. However, having looked at it myself, this is what I think and why. And then I'll make a lengthy, to whatever length I feel I need to, argument for the position that I hold. As I've gotten older, I've certainly gotten, I hope, and I think in a good way, more gracious toward those with whom I disagree, especially if you're talking about people that do believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Uh, I will be more kind in my dismissal of their view than perhaps I did earlier in my life. And I regret that I wasn't as gracious. I hope people would so treat me for, in that kind of a what way. Would an
0: example of this be when you're preaching through Revelation? You, you would give various views and yeah, then say, example, try I to just, represent I'm, them well. I'm and teaching so on.
3: through Revelation right now and about to finish it up. It's going to come out in the Christ Exposition. And going through it this time, I read commentaries, all of whom I knew disagreed with me. I did not, I, I'm pre-meal, pre-trib. I did didn't read a single pre-meal, pre-trib commentary. I didn't listen to a single pre-meal. I listened to Mark Dever, David Platt, and Don Carson, two of whom are all millennial, and one of whom is historical pre, that being Carson. And so I would sometimes share. Now, I have a dear friend, and I usually didn't call their name, but I would sometimes I did a couple times, you know, David, I'd pick at him. David Platt's my really good friend. Well, he's so good on missions. He's so wrong on eschatology. And, but then I would play for it. No, seriously, he says this. And I said, I really do understand how he gets that. I do understand why they take that position. Here's why
0: I see it a little differently. And I would say it like that. The reason you didn't read any pre-meal, pre-trib commentary is that there, there aren't any? Is that?
2: Is that I was <laughs>
0: there aren't as many I digress yeah, yeah you did
3: digress and I'm, I'm just going to say it's the view of Billy Graham Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur what else do you need I need a little bit more but probably anyway. do probably do <laughs> probably do and David Jeremiah which I know that's where uh, in part uh, Brian was going but again if you're kind and gracious but again I'm not up there to give a theological discourse where I'm allowed each view give all the posi- I mean if I do that then I'm going to take three-fourths of my teaching time. And is that, again, what Brian said earlier, and Jim, is that really what needs to be brought to the table? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a way of saying is you always have more in your warehouse than you put in your show window. Mm-hmm. And you put in the show window what's going to build up and edify your people.
2: I would just add, don't build your ministry off of those passages <laughs> of Scripture. You know, don't, they're, they're, The controversial passages most of the time are not ones that are Formative and and crucial, and our doctrine hinges on, or passages that are questionable with regard to their place in the in the canon. You know, manuscripts. uh, You know, were they part of the original? I don't think we need to avoid those, but I think we don't need to build our ministries
0: on. That's good.
1: I I would only add to what's been said here, including uh, Danny's confession. I mean, I think early on I thought that being a good preacher m- meant that i needed to out argue other people yeah. mm-hmm. you know that, that was if i won the argument i that that was the victory mm-hmm. instead of recognizing you know winning the debate is not necessarily winning hearts at all mm-hmm. and Christ, I um, so uh, i think when we're dealing with hard passages like that i have learned sadly i think late uh, later than i wish i had that while saying where we differ I usually do that, and I usually don't spend a lot of time doing no. that. I usually do enough to say, I know there are different views. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to argue. It's not a debate. I'm not here to argue. So here, I know that other people view this differently this way or this way. Here's where I am. And then say where I am and why. But then I usually try to come back around and say, but, you know, even with those where I differ, here's what we're united on as believers. Yes. That's good. So you try to kind of bring it back around to say, instead of leaving it where, you know, I'm right and they're wrong to say, but actually we're brothers here. hmm and to try to kind of have God's people feel that unity in Christ mm-hmm. as kind of the, the final word, if, good. if we can. Well,
3: good. For example, when I went through Revelation, I said on a number of occasions, you need to understand, I agree with David Platt's interpretation of Revelation about 90% of the time. And the 10% that we disagree on is not essential. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of some details that will all work out in the end, and we'll trust God to do that. And then I go on. So I, I acknowledge we have a lot more in agreement than we did difference, where some, well, you know, there's some places where if you don't hold to a very particular, precise uh, view of eschatology, you can't teach there, or you can't even be on their church staff. And, and I, I, I grieve over that. And I think you need to know where the lines need to be drawn, and too often I think we draw them where they don't need to be. Okay.
0: Good. Maybe one more, guys. Um, what would you do if you were
1: called to uh, pastor a church where before you, you you received that call, there was a serious lack of expository pre- preaching? Uh, just really preaching before then. You can you just go in?
0: New pastor, new church. Previously didn't have exposition. You're now the pastor. What do you do? How do you start?
2: You start with what you don't do, and that is you don't you don't hate on the pastor, the previous pastor, and your you know your sermons and trash talk him either in your sermons or offline. That's you you right. don't. It's, there's no there's no win in that. Um, I think modeling, uh, You know, I would say two things, modeling, just do it, be faithful to it. The second thing that I would say is, and this, I think this needs to be done in all of our pastors throughout your ministries, take some time to teach your people about preaching, why you preach like you do and what you're trying to accomplish, not in contrast necessarily, they'll figure that out, but here's why I'm doing what I'm doing, here's what you can do in order to be a
1: part of the preaching
2: events.
0: So. That's good.
1: Uh, One of the things Danny did earlier, which I'll just remind you, true expository preaching is not just a commentary outline, right? So it has explanation, illustration, application. There is something those people are probably looking for and it is legitimate to say which of those bubbles do I need to blow up a little bit more to kind of win a hearing, get them to move with me. So it, it may be to say I'm not compromising to do more in the way of application initially to kind of get them to come with me to say all right, now where did I get that and to emphasize the application as a way of getting them to the explanation or is is it strong, you know, narrative oriented, the the previous guy just told lots of stories and actually begin to hook the stories to the exposition and to to use the tools to move them to a place that you think and not just say I'm going to do it my way and irrelevant to what the context is I'm entering. Mm. Uh, an expository method has lots of tools, mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we don't always take out the hammer, right? Mm-hmm. So, what's, you know, we have multiple tools to use appropriately for the task at hand.
0: Mm. That's good.